0: Morning, everybody. Great to be with you online today. Welcome to West Winds. Oh, It's a little different now than it used to be, but that's all right. God is good, and church is too. We're glad that you're here. This week I learned about an occupation known as a fuller. It's an occupation that's no longer in practice. It died out around the time of the medieval ages and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But a fuller is someone who softens wool in preparation for making clothes. And it is a disgusting disgusting job. It happens in two stages. First of all, the fuller takes the wool and stuffs it into a big basin, and the basin is then filled with ammonium sodiate, which if you're unfamiliar with ammonium sodiate, as I myself clearly am, it's largely comprised of human urine. So then the fuller will stand in the big basin of pea and step all over the wool to get it nice and soft. That's That's step one, and it gets even juicier, friends, because in step two, the fuller will then take the wet wool and hang it up on hooks and then proceed to beat it with a heavy club. Now, if you are unaccustomed to beating wet objects with a heavy club, let me introduce you to a terrifying little truth known as blowback or backspray, or general disgustingness. Now, I tell you that not only so that you'll be thankful for the job that you have, because it's not that one. I tell you that because a fuller features prominently in the story of today's scripture reading, and that's the story of Jesus' brother James. In fact, a fuller murdered James, as we'll discover today. But first, we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for the apostle Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, meaning they can corroborate the story, though some have fallen asleep. Then, verse 7, and this is the key verse for today, then he appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles. Now, we know that Jesus had brothers and at least two sisters he may have had more we just know that he had some sisters but both mark's gospel and matthew's gospel introduce us to jesus four earthly brothers they are joseph and simon about whom we know very little except that later on they became leaders bishops in in sequence uh, of the church in jerusalem jude is one of jesus other brothers that's the guy who wrote the letter jude in the latter new testament and also james the person that we're speaking about today who also wrote a letter in the latter new testament um, and was bishop of the church in jerusalem now james became one of the twelve apostles later on but originally he wasn't included among the number of jesus followers in fact James, Joseph, and Simon, and Jude were all quite opposed to Jesus' earthly ministry. And sometimes we overlook this. We just sort of notice they're not really around, and then later they're around. But there's a couple of strange episodes in the Gospel accounts that tell us that they're not merely um, uninterested in Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 7, they have this sort of snide exchange with Christ where they almost mock him and tell him to go out and and perform miracles so, so he can really prove who he is. In fact, if you read it carefully, it's very similar to, to the accusations that the Roman centurion's level at Jesus while he's up on the cross. Remember they say to him, you know, if you truly are the son of God, then, then you know, call your angels to defend you. Get down from there and, and show us who you really are. Well, that, that's basically what Jesus' own brothers are saying to him. Like, look, if you've got all these powers, if you've got all this stuff, if you're really the Messiah for whom we've been waiting, get out there and prove it. And Jesus says, it's not yet time for me to do that. Now, in another encounter in the Gospels, Jesus is surrounded by people, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and Jesus' whole family come up to him, his sisters now, his four brothers, even Mary, and they say, essentially, hey, knock it off and and come home with us. You're you're embarrassing us. You're, You're causing a scene. And this is why Jesus responds by saying, I tell you the truth, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Jesus was heartbroken by the lack of support from his own biological family. And I don't think we fully appreciate the pain that that would have caused Christ, the sadness, the lack of support that he would have had, and later, the, the bitter regret that Jesus' siblings would have experienced on account of the fact that they weren't there for their brother when he needed them. Even on the cross... Jesus looks down at, the, at the, the sea of people gathered to watch him be publicly humiliated, executed, and exposed, and he does not commit the well-being of his mother, Mary, to any of his brothers. An absolutely unheard of occasion in the ancient world. Instead, he looks at his disciple, John, and says, Look after my mother, and mother, this now is your new son. There was a huge rift between Jesus and his siblings. And it's important to ask, why? Why? Well, I mean, we can't be sure. We're, we're just speculating. But at the very least, we know that they were uncomfortable with who he claimed to be and what he claimed to be able to do. They certainly didn't consider him the Messiah. They, they certainly didn't consider him someone of special privilege. I mean, this was their, their brother. They played with him. They did chores with him. They, they, they walked around. He was too ordinary to be the savior of the world. And here I think, it's important to acknowledge that that our failure to appreciate those around us actually hurts us. Like in, in the case of James, his failure to appreciate Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, totally devastated him later on. It's a, a regret that he never quite released. But in the case of you and I, I mean clearly we're not living with Jesus, we're not growing up with the, the earthly Jesus, the bodily Jesus, but we are growing up around some beautiful and remarkable people. Our spouses, our our, our parents, our our children, our coworkers, our neighbors, our employers, our, our teachers, we're surrounded by beauty, by amazing people, but we fail to appreciate it. And ultimately, we're the ones who are poorer for it. Because after a while, familiarity does breed contempt. And we no longer count fully the glories and beauties and achievements of those closest to us. And we tend to overcount their failures, their shortcomings, their peccadillos, their idiosyncrasies. They just kind of drive us nuts. And while preparing for this message, I've just struck over and over and over again that each of us has in our lives many people that bear the image of God within them. And we can't see it because they're too close. I think that 's at least part of what was going on with James and the Brothers and Sisters of Christ is they were just they were just too close and they couldn 't see Jesus for who he really was now that clearly wasn 't the case with Mary and joseph Mary and Joseph. <laughs> Experienced all the wild and supernatural events of Jesus' birth. Remember, they had to run from from the Mad King Herod. They had to escape to Egypt. Angels appeared to them in dreams, in in, in visions. Then, of course, they were visited by the Magi. I mean, there's a this crazy number of occurrences surrounding the birth of Jesus, such that Mary and Joseph could not have helped but feel a special connection to their boy. I mean. He was gonna always be their favorite. Even if he hadn't been divine, even if he hadn't been the Mashiach, the savior of the world, the son of God, even if he was just a kid they had to save at risk of their own lives, a kid that was visited by foreigners, I mean, he was special. And then as he grows up and grows in wisdom and stature and he astounds everyone, including the doctors of the church, the the doctors in the synagogue and the temple in Jerusalem when he's 12 years old and he sort of sets everyone on their head. I mean, this this is a prodigy. Even if he wasn't, God made flesh. He was a remarkable human being. And so Mary and Joseph would have had a favorite. Now, as parents, we know that we don't play favorites. Well, right. I say that because both my children are watching. So no, I don't have a favorite. It's you. Right, no, Mary and Joseph, they would have, they would have favored the boy, Jesus, and, and James and Joseph and Simon and, and, and Jude. They, they would have chafed at that. They would have been frustrated by it because if he's the favorite, then they're not. And no matter how good they are, no matter how noble they are, no matter how intelligent they are, they're never going to measure up to Jesus. And so they're constantly going to be in this comparison game, which is never healthy. Comparison, as it's been said, is the thief of joy. And you can never win in any comparison. And I'll tell you the truth, the truth probably you're not going to hear often enough and probably you're not ready to accept that the reason you shouldn't compare yourself to everybody else is because some people are better than you. Well, plain and simple, some people are better than you. I don't mean that they're more valuable than you. No, I think all human life is sacred. I think each human life, because we are made in God's image and likeness, we have an ontological value that cannot be robbed. But, but, but some people make a bigger contribution than others. I'll never forget one of my earliest mentors in the pastorate was introducing me to another pastor and so he was telling me all about this guy and so he was saying Dave I'm so proud of the the growth and the development that you're experiencing as a preacher but wait till you meet Wayne Wayne is amazing you know he's just he's better than you in every direction I was like well, hey Timmo that's 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 not nice I don't like that I'm I'm affronted by this like don't all people have that no not all people have the same value Dave sorry w- Wayne's just better than you <laughs> and and I realized actually um yeah he is He's a better preacher than me. He's a higher capacity leader. He's got a better ability to synthesize information. He's just, he's just better. Now, that doesn't mean that his life has more value than mine. It just means he makes a bigger contribution. Some people make bigger contributions than others. They're, they're better than us. And that's such an uncomfortable idea because we think, well, no, we shouldn't be ranking people. But the truth is we rank people all the time. And appreciating the value of others is, is important. And not overappreciating our own contribution, I think that's important also. And there are times and seasons where certain people make heroic contributions. Right now, all of our medical personnel, our nurses, our doctors, our EMTs, our support staff, they're making huge sacrifices to keep the rest of us safe and healthy. So we applaud them, we appreciate them, and we acknowledge your contribution is better than ours right now. We live because of you. Thank God for you. We can't compare ourselves to one another. We can't compare ourselves to them. Because you're always going to lose. You're always going to lose the comparison game. Instead, you should be thinking about you. And if you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to yourself. It's you versus you. That's the ultimate comparison. Are you better than you were a year ago? Are you more intelligent, more studied, more learned? Are you, are you holy? Are you spending more time in prayer? Are you studying the scriptures more faithfully? Are you more loving? Are you demonstrating God's love to others in acts of more charity or sacrifice or service? I mean, are, are, are you better in whatever metric you wanna pick? Are you improving? Are you growing? Are you ambitiously pursuing Christ with every ounce of who you are? Because that's what you ought to be tracking. Not whether or not you're as holy as them, but whether or not you are as holy as God is calling you to become. That's why at Westwinds, we always talk about the fact that that God wants you to become the best version of of you. You don't need to be like me, you don't need to be like Ben, you don't need to be like Kelly. You you just need to be the most refined, purified version of yourself with God's help for God's glory. Because God gets glory when you get better. When you're refined, when you're shined up, when you're polished, you're like a diamond. you were made to shine. It's just that we get so distracted posture and puffed up and we waste a lot of time with that and i think maybe that's what was happening with james james a remarkable religious young man a remarkable religious older man was never going to be good enough to be as good as jesus and that probably chafed again and again and again in that family dynamic now Apparently, at Jesus' crucifixion, that was what we're told by church historians, that was really the moment that everything sort of came to a head for James, where he was ashamed, embarrassed, he regretted it, he wasn't certain yet about his brother's identity, but but, many hoped... And so then when Jesus was resurrected and James started hearing the rumors, maybe he began to believe then. We know that for sure that the the real moment of transformation came here when when Jesus met James face to face, when James could see, there's my actual brother. I know him. I've known him my whole life. It's not a, a, a double. It's not a doppelganger. It wasn't a hoax. He was dead. I saw him die. Now I see him live again. There's the proof of the resurrection. I don't mean just proof of the resurrection for James. Clearly it was that. I mean proof of the resurrection for you and me. James had no motivation to fake the Resurrection. He wasn't a follower of Jesus until after Christ came back from the dead. And sometimes people say, well, you know, the Resurrection, that's uh, uh, something that all these Christians were in on together. It's a a big elaborate plan to prop up the authority of the church. That's such historical baloney. There was no church and they had no authority. And here's James, Jesus' own brother, who went from not being a follower, now after the resurrection, becoming a follower, and not only him, but all of Jesus' siblings becoming dramatic followers of their brother and refusing to call themselves the brothers of Christ. Instead, they refer to themselves repeatedly as the servants of God and of Christ. That's in the, the opening verse of both James and of Jude, that they're servants of God of Christ. They don't even pretend that they're worthy to be called Jesus' brothers anymore. And that radical reversal from from people who rejected Christ to now people who will follow him, that speaks volumes. And not only that they begin to follow him, but they followed him even to death. They were all martyred. Nobody dies for a hoax. Certainly not your brother. My brothers wouldn't loan me $20. They're definitely not going to make up a new religion about me. So James, he changes teams becomes a follower of his brother, reminding you and I, it's never too late, man. It's never too late to give your whole life to Jesus. It's never too late to look back on your past and realize I've made a mistake. It's never too late to come to grips with the promise of God for your future in and through and with Jesus. And that's what happens with James. He, again, he becomes a prominent leader in the early church at some point we think somewhere around 42 or 44 ad uh, James the brother of John a different James you know one of this inner circle Peter James and John that James uh, dies he's he's executed for being a believer and it's at that moment that we think that James the just James the righteous James the brother of Jesus becomes one of the 12 apostles and quickly people look to him for authority and leadership I mean he's got He's got wisdom more significantly he is he's devout in a way that puts everyone else to shame. He is serious about his faith in God. Now he was a Jewish Christian and he continued to practice the religion of Judaism. He did all the feasts, he did the festivals, he did the prayers he did I mean he was he was Jewish and so Jewish Christians looked to him as a model for character and integrity. And Gentile Christians look to him as a model of grace, because James said, even though I'm a Jewish Christian who practices following Jesus in a specifically Jewish way, you who are not Jewish, you don't have to do it. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to follow all the weird little rituals. If you're, if you're going to be a Gentile follower of Jesus, then great, be exactly that. So, so James was popular with everyone because they all saw in him a godly example and a reasonable man. And what's so hilarious is that as James continues to rise to prominence, he's he's somewhat played off and against the Apostle Paul, who lives at the other end of the theological spectrum. Again, we oftentimes don't appreciate the nuance here, but James is a Jewish Christian intent on following the rules and performing good works. Paul is a Jewish Christian who is a missionary to Gentiles and is predominantly focused on grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. These two things, of course, are not mutually exclusive, but they're not the same either. These are the bookends of the Christian faith—James over here and Paul over here—and the person who keeps them together, ironically, is the Apostle Peter. Peter, who's been such a buffoon, such a boob throughout all the Gospels, is now the one who's holding the family together? Peter who shoots from the hip, who lips off. Peter who walks around and threatens to beat people up and chops off their ears and blunders through. That Peter, he's the peacemaker? Yeah. He's the original bridge builder between James and Paul. And as a result, the church has unity despite the incredible time of persecution. And I think this is a good uh, thing for us to acknowledge that Christians are going to be different like some Christians are going to have different theological convictions than others. Some Christians are going to practice things a little different than others. Some are going to have suits and some are going to have tattoos. Some are going to go to church in a big building. Some are going to go to church in a little living room. Some are going to be reformed. Some are going to be Pentecostal. But the, the whole point of the scripture is to remind us that when we elevate and give our lives to Jesus, he's the one that unifies us. That's what kept these three unified. That's what Peter was keeping us all unified for, keeping them all unified for. I mean, that's, that's the point. There ought to be bandwidth for us to appreciate our differences, and also to, to walk with your own kind of swagger. I mean, James doesn't have to be like Paul. Paul doesn't have to be like Peter. You don't have to be like anybody. You, you get to just do it your own way and follow God with your own sense of holiness and, and, and conviction. Now, James stayed for all of his life in Jerusalem. And because he was so popular with the Jewish population and the Gentile population, he became a real threat to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the, the teachers of the law. And so the Pharisees seized James from his own home. He was praying at the time. And the church historian Hesepetus tells us that James' knees were calloused like the knees of camels because of how much time he spent in prayer. So the Pharisees come into his house, he's praying, they grab him, they take him up on top of the temple in Jerusalem. Now that top of the temple experience has happened elsewhere in the Gospels. Recall, that's where Satan took Jesus to tempt him with all the kingdoms of the world. And so James is taken to the place where his brother was taken by his accuser, like Christ was taken there by his accuser. And the Pharisees demand that James renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And James refuses. Here's what he says. I confess him fully, before the whole multitude, and declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior, and our Lord. At this, the Pharisees, according to Eusebius, a fourth century church historian, throw him off of the temple, and command the watching crowd to begin stoning James from the temple roof, throwing rocks down, intending to kill him. And you know what James does? There, having fallen from a great height, being pelted by rocks, James gets back on his knees and he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At which point, a fuller emerges from the crowd and with his fuller's club strikes James dead. Thus ends the life of of Jesus' brother, James, first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. He ends his life in the way that Jesus ended his life, forgiving those who killed him in the midst of their murder. And you might wonder, how can anybody do that? I could never do that. I mean, when I imagine Jesus doing that on the cross, forgiving the people as they crucify him, I go, well, at least, it Jesus. Jesus has this maybe supernatural power that I don't have. But now the example of James, modeled upon the life of Jesus, means that I can't, I can't just pretend that because it's Jesus, you know, he can do some things that maybe I can't. No, no. no. Now I realize this, that same authority, that same power is available to to every believer. And and how? Through prayer. I don't mean one prayer. I mean a life of prayer. Prayer is the preparation to forgive when we need to. It'll never be sufficient to just pray once that we would forgive somebody. No, we we cultivate prayer. We cultivate a life of prayer. We cultivate a heart of forgiveness on our knees, on our face, before God, again and again and again. And nobody's ever going to make you do that. Nobody's ever going to hold your feet to the fire. Prayer is between you and God. And if your prayer life stinks, if it's bankrupt, if it's if it's incomplete, that ought to tell you something about you. So friends, my prayer for you is that the Spirit of Jesus would draw up inside of you new resources of holiness, sanctification, purity, and ambition to please God. I pray that you would have full hearts and clear minds, that you would have fierce spirits and calloused knees grace and peace everyone we will see you again tomorrow for the breviary